I brought with me uh, a little bit of an illustration this morning. Uh, I was cleaning out my, or cleaning, wasn't cleaning out, but I was moving some things around in the little office I have at home. And uh, my seven-year-old son was up there with me while I was doing it. And uh, he, I've had this, uh, it's actually a trophy. Um, I've had this airplane sitting on my desk in my office. I don't have much on my desk, but this is on there for for a long time. And he had never asked me about it before. And he said, Dad, what is the deal with, what what is that airplane statue? And so I read it to him. It says, presented to Lester Woods. For 21 years of accident-free flying at Cutstown Airport. Very random. Very random. It's from the 70s. He's like, is that something you bought at like, a, at like an auction or something that you're going to sell on eBay? I said, no. Uh, Lester Woods is your great-great-grandfather. He's my great-granddad. I said, I called him Poppy Woods. He says, oh. And he looked at it for a second. And he says, what was Poppy Woods like? And I was really kind of excited. Poppy Woods, to me, is one of the greatest men I've ever had the privilege to know. I also have the privilege of saying that until I was 9 or 10 years old, I had a relationship with my great-grandfather. He passed away when I was 9 or 10. He died of prostate cancer. But I, I was close with him. And my 7-year-old my wants to know, what was Poppy Woods like? And I was both excited to tell him about his great-great-grandfather, but I was also in that moment a little intimidated. Because how do you explain to a seven-year-old who a man was that passed away like 35 years ago? I had some limitations, right? And so... Um, I said, well, what would you like to know? He said, well, like, what did he do? Was he fun? Did he fly airplanes? And so, you know, I started out as best as I could trying to introduce my son to somebody who he could never meet, he could never talk to, he could never touch, he could never uh, play wiffle ball with. And I was like, man, how do I help Chase know a man that he could never meet. And I quickly came to the conclusion, it is impossible for Chase to ever know Poppy Woods. He can't know him. He can't. Because to know somebody requires like first-person, first-hand interactive relationship, right? If you really want to get to know somebody, you got to do more than just follow them on Twitter or Instagram and Facebook to really know them. To truly know somebody requires first person with no third person spin in between, right? Because every layer, every filter you put between the original and the recipient, you run the risk of losing some authenticity. Even if you follow someone on social media, you might say, listen, you know, like I, you can name your favorite celebrity or whoever you follow. You know, you might say, oh, goodness, John Maxwell's wrote all these leadership books and I follow everything that he writes. I've read all of his books. and You just still don't really know him. You know about him, but you don't really know him. So I'm like, how do I help Chase know Poppy Woods? Do I tell him, well, Chase, you can't possibly know him? And I thought, that's not what Chase asked. He didn't ask um, introduced me to Poppy Woods. He said, what was he like? So what I did was I started to answer his questions and 
I tried to find relatable ideas or images or stories that a seven-year-old could understand that would help him in his imagination form a more accurate idea of who Poppy Woods was. So I did the best that I could. I said, well, yeah, he was, he was actually a pilot uh, for the army and he fought in World War II uh, overseas. And he said, did he kill people with airplanes? I was like, this got serious really fast. And I was like, no, he didn't fly. You know, he wasn't a fighter pilot. He flew the soldiers back and forth from one place to the other. His plane didn't actually, you know, do military missions. And he says, well, is that what he got the trophy for? I said, no. Um, after he stopped being a military pilot, he still continued to fly little airplanes. And he would fly little tiny small airplanes at the Kutztown Airport. And he got a trophy for having 21 years without an airplane accident, which is like, you'd hope that all pilots could earn that you know, trophy. And, you know, I could tell he was kind of understanding, but, you know, I couldn't really go inside of his imagination. I don't know what image of Poppy Woods he's getting when I say he was a pilot in the military. You know, it might, his imagination might differ from the actual Poppy Woods. And I could tell that he was kind of, he's like, well, did you know him? I said, yeah, I know him. He's like, well, what did you do with Poppy Woods? Then I could go through, you know, I have this box of old photographs. I was fortunate to have a few photographs of me with Poppy Woods. Now, I was much littler and hairier at the time, and I had a picture of me and Poppy Woods riding his John Deere tractor. It's one of my favorite pictures. And he says, oh, is that why you like John Deere tractors? Is that why you collect? I said, actually, yeah, because when I was little, John, uh, there was a John Deere dealership about three quarters of a mile from Poppy Woods' house. So when I'd go visit Poppy Woods, we would walk together. He'd put me on his shoulders. He would carry me down the road to the John Deere dealership. And they have all the huge tractors outside and even the big combines. And he would take me one by one and lift me inside of them. And I would sit in there and pretend like I was driving all the John Deere machinery. And so, yeah, to this day, every time I see the green and the yellow John Deere stuff, it reminds me of, of Poppy Woods. And so when he saw Poppy Woods and me on the tractor, he said, Daddy, if we ever get a riding lawnmower, will you take me for a ride? So he's, I'm seeing he's starting to relate some of what I loved about Poppy Woods. He saw that Poppy Woods loved spending time with his great-grandson. And one of the ways he did it was that way. And Chase loved spending time with his dad. And so you know, I said, yeah, here's another picture of me and Poppy Woods sitting on a porch swing. And I, I, had, I was like eight years old. I had just shorts on. I had, it was in the middle of summer, so I didn't have a shirt on. And I was really sweaty. He's like, wow, you look like you're really sweaty. What were you doing? I said, well, me, Poppy Woods was throwing me batting practice with wiffle ball. And I was hitting. And I could tell the more that we talked, he began to take ideas that were familiar to him. And in his imagination, he could use those things to be kind of a bridge to get a little bit of a better idea about this man that he had never met. Now, truth be told, at the end of the conversation, I think maybe he had a better idea of what Poppy Woods was, was like. I don't know if it, his idea of Poppy Woods is 100% accurate. There's some limitations he has. He's seven. He has a seven-year-old, well, maybe a nine or ten-year-old's vocabulary. He has an imagination that is some ways overactive and some ways underactive. He's trying to relate to a man who grew up several generations before him. And so some of the different things that I'm trying to explain that were normal to Poppy Woods, I don't know how that translates in his mind. I have some limitations. I have a firsthand experience with Poppy Woods, but you know what? I've got a memory that's becoming less reliable by the day. I have a limited vocabulary. In fact, sometimes I find it's really challenging for me as a grown-up 
to try and put things in seven-year-old terms. So as kind of the only credible connection between Poppy Woods and Chase, there's some inadequacies in my efforts to try and introduce him to Poppy Woods and help him know what he's like. But I hope at the end of the conversation, he has a little bit better idea of who this really great influential man was and is to me. The relief that I have is that no one's going to ever have, Chase is never going to be in this pressure-filled moment where someone's going to ask him, I want to know exactly what Poppy Woods was like. He's never going to be in this moment of his life where if he answers that question wrong, his whole life is going to fall apart. There's, there's hopefully some value in him understanding who his great-granddad was. But its influence on his life, his answer to that question, what is Poppy Woods like, doesn't, isn't necessarily going to make or break him. The title of my message this morning is, What is God like? What is God like? And if, <laughs> if there's a more important question for us to wrestle with in this life, I don't know if I can find it. Every one of us has an answer to that question. What is God like? And the challenge that we have is how do we understand a God who is, by his own definition, infinite? We've never met him. We haven't shaken his hand. He doesn't talk like we talk. We've not seen photographs of God. He doesn't have a YouTube channel. He's not teaching classes at the local community college. How in the world can we understand what God is like? For that matter, who can actually know truthfully who God is? Who can even do that? Um, Our text this morning from Matthew, Jesus answers this question head on. And he does it in a way that is both really troubling, but also really inspiring. And so I want to, I was going to read it from here, but I can't see it. I'll read it from here. Um, I want to read to you from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 23 through, I believe we're going to, to verse 30. I'll read the whole passage. I'm not going to unpack the whole passage today. Okay. But I want to give you at least a context. But I will give you a cue when I want you to listen in. Because this passage, like every other part of the Gospel of Matthew, falls within a greater scene. There's other things going on that happen before this scene and after this scene that add some meaning to this passage. But I want to read to you um, what Jesus says. It says, at that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven. Now, keep in mind, he's praying out loud in front of people. He's praying to God, but he's praying out loud so that they can hear what he's praying. So he's praying and he's teaching simultaneously. Okay? Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever, and for, this next word's really important, we'll see it again in a minute, revealing, for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. 
my father has it. Now he goes from talking to God to talking to the listeners. My father has entrusted everything to me. Now listen in. This is the part I want you to lean into. He's going to answer the question, what man, what woman, or how many men or women truly know God, who know God truly, completely, accurately, fully? Here's the answer. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father. And we'll finish the verse in a second. He tells you exactly how many human beings truly know the Father. The answer is zero. No one truly knows the Father. But the beauty is the verse doesn't stop there, or else we'd all be doomed. No one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to, here's this word again, reveal him. So he transitions out of that really weighty statement here. Then Jesus said, now you might have heard this part, come to me. Because in coming to him, based on what he just said, you're coming also to the Father. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you in exchange rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your soul. He doesn't say rest for your body. He says rest for your soul. Your soul is that part of you that's really you, but that doesn't have mass. It's not matter, but it matters. It is your it is your will, it is your emotions, it is your personality, it is your attributes. He says, if you come to me, you'll find rest for that part of you that thinks, that imagines, that feels, the person part of you. You'll actually find rest for that part of you. He says, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Um, this, is a, this is a really weighty, passage Jesus's answer to the question who can truly know God Jesus's first answer is nobody nobody can truly know him and we'll unpack that in a moment he also gives a more detailed answer to that which we'll also unpack Um, what I do want to submit to you this morning is this it's impossible for any human being to know God fully it's impossible It's impossible for any human being to know God completely. It's impossible for any human being to know God adequately. That doesn't mean that we can't know some truth about God, but we'll never be able to understand all the truth about God. We can't know him completely. We cannot know him adequately. Our thoughts about God cannot be and can never be too high. We can't think too highly of God. We can only think too lowly of God. We can only think inadequately of God. We can only think incompletely of God. I will say to you that my thoughts of God and your thoughts of God this morning right now are woefully too low. They are painfully inadequate 
they are infinitely incomplete. Um, so with that in mind, the title of my sermon this morning is What is God Like? And I guess I just want to say to you, we cannot know God fully as he is, but we can know what he's like. Okay? Chase could not know Poppy Woods as he is, as he was. But he can know some things about what Poppy Woods was like. There is a, I was, I was confessing to uh, my team when I was preparing this message, what is God like? I wrote that title on the, t- in my, I won't go through my whole sermon prep process. I wrote that question at the top of my first draft. What is God like? And I just put the pen down. And I really let that sink in for a second. And the next thought that came to my mind is there is a 100% chance of failure in my effort to approach that question with any sense of completeness, with any sense of unabridged proficiency. How do you even begin to organize a talk answering the question of what is God like? What right do any of us have to answer that question with any sense of authority or confidence? And man, did it start to eat my lunch. And it started to really, really intimidate me. Like, how do you, how do you even organize this? I can't think of him too highly. I can only think of him too, too lowly. We all think of God too lowly. Can I prove it to you a little bit? Maybe I can illustrate this to you. How many of you have ever attended a wedding? Some of you are not telling the truth this morning. I'm going to dig in my heels and I will not raise my hand in church. Okay, gotcha. God knows your heart. I recently attended a wedding. I've attended a few, many. I've been at many of your weddings. I attended a wedding recently um, and it was a first of, for many things for me, it was the first time I've uh, officiated a wedding between a Kenyan man and a Tanzanian woman. I I stuck out at the, the wedding. Um, there was a lot of cultural things I was not, that weren't part of my German upbringing. But it was in Baltimore on a boat. I've never done that either. But I want to tell you the, the atmosphere was absolutely amazing. It was so much fun. But at this wedding, I noticed, wow, there's some really great fashion here. Right? You know, when you go to a wedding, you usually get dressed up, right? Some of you some of you use it as a reason to go buy something new or at least iron something old, right? The week before you're starving yourself to fit into the last nice thing that you bought, so you don't have to go buy something new. But what do you do when you go to a wedding? You don't wait until five minutes before you go to the wedding and think, Oh my goodness, what am I gonna wear? What time is it again? No, 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 no. I'm telling you, people roll into weddings dressed a certain way with a certain amount of preparation and thought that went into it to the accessories, the hair, the makeup. If you go to attend a wedding, you bring presents with you, right? Or you should a certain amount. We'll maybe roll that out later. You know, don't go to a wedding. You bring a present or a gift or a check or something to give to the family. 
There's a lot of thought and effort that goes into it. The transportation, the childcare, you think about it leading up to it. Now, some of you are like, that's not me at all. I wait until the last minute. You're the outlier, okay? Most of the people in the room would say, listen, when I go to a wedding, this is, you know, there's a lot of mindfulness, thoughtfulness, effort, planning, celebration, generosity that goes into it. And that's just kind of normal, regardless of what culture you're in, that goes into it. Once you think of the last time you went to a wedding, think of it. The last wedding you attended. I want you to think about the preparation. I want you to think about the expense. I want you to think about the effort, the thoughtfulness, the priority you had to give that event. Okay? And I want you to compare that to the effort, the mindfulness, the thoughtfulness, the seriousness, the generosity, the priority you placed on the last time you gathered together with other Christians for a sacred time of worshiping Jesus Christ. Which one had more thoughtfulness? Which one had a higher priority? And I'm preaching to the choir. You're all here this morning, right? Which one did you put in more effort leading up to it? I'm not making a statement about fashion not making a statement about offerings. I'm just trying to illustrate to you if there is a difference in just the mindfulness, the thoughtfulness, the priority, the passion, the generosity, this celebratory attitude that we put into a wedding, which we should, right? And that same bucket of, I, of, of quotients is less if it's diminished for, say, coming together to a sacred assembly of worship. Why is that? It's because our thoughts of God are simply too low. They're too low. Because there's other things we are capable of thinking higher of, and we do. And we think of God less than something. And if God is supreme, then nothing else can be supreme. I'm not talking about just time. I'm not just talking about... I'm talking about thoughtfulness, seriousness, priority, sacred. And I'm afraid that the way that we think of God is not going like this, it's going like this. And that's tragic, and that is dire. And so there is no possible way this morning that I can, in the last few minutes that I have, feel like I could do justice to answering the question of what is God like? Because what are you going to do? How do you take an infinite God and explain him? I mean, this series for crying out loud, I had the audacity to call it 101, the basics of being a Christian. And the first thing in my little outline, you know, let's, hey, let's hit some of the basics in between the gospel of Mark. And when we start on the minor prophets, we've got three weeks. Let's hit some of the basics. Let's talk about God the gospel, and the disciplines. And we'll just take one message on God. And then I sat, I'm like, what am I doing? The basics of God? God is anything but basic. How do I explain God in 35 minutes? Well, the only way you can get there is you have to, you can't talk about all of him because he's infinite, so you have to reduce him. And God's not reducible. 
Okay, so if we're not going to make God small enough to cover in a 30-minute bite-sized chunk, I guess then we have to make him expansive. We have to be big. Let's cover all the names of God in the Bible. Let's make a long list of all of the qualities and attributes about God, and let's give a definition to every one. Let's use all of the vocabulary words that we have. Let's use men. Instead of using a few words, let's use every word we have. There's a problem with that. That won't do, because at some point, in all of the words that I'll use, you will get bored. And how dare we bring boredom into a discussion about Almighty God? Or, some of you don't think that's possible, but at some point I'll run out of words. My vocabulary will fall short. And I won't even have scratched the surface of God. Or worse yet, I could give you a list of every single name of God listed in the Bible. I have a poster in my office. Someone gave me listing all the names of God. And on a certain level, it's impressive. And on another level, there's probably some sultan somewhere in the Middle East who has a longer name. At some point, you've mined out every verse in the Bible about God. And if we do that and we cover it exhaustively, we could lead ourselves to the conclusion that we have now listed all possible content about God and we have mastered the content. And I want to tell you something. God is not content to be mastered. He is the master of everybody. So what do we do? We, can't, we don't want to reduce him. We can't expand him. Here's what I landed on. Here's the one thing I think I, I can try and be successful at this morning if I haven't already. It's your big idea. The big idea is that the desire of every true Christian is to purify and elevate our idea of God until it's worthy of him. What I hope I can inspire you to do is to join me in a daily effort to take whatever I think of God, whatever my ideas are about who he is, and to constantly purify those thoughts and those ideas. To elevate my thinking of who God is until they can at least approach the point that the ideas and the thoughts that I have of God are not beneath him, but they're worthy of him. to somehow purify and elevate our idea of God until it's worthy of him. And perhaps, perhaps maybe I've already inspired that this morning. But I will tell you, Echo, our view of who God is is way too low. And it shows up in the way that we're living. It just does. Your view of God is proven in every decision that you make and every choice you make, and every daydream, and every fantasy, and every minute of screen time, and everything we do with our money, and every interaction with friend, foe, stranger, neutral, and the way that we approach our work, your idea of God shows up in absolutely everything about the way that you live. And what it's showing us, and what our lives are showing, is that our view of God is too low. But I'm hoping I can inspire you to say there is a pathway you can know what God is like. We might not know him as he is, but we can know what he's like. I want to tackle just a couple questions in the last few minutes I have this morning. They're in your notes. Here's some of the questions I'll try to tackle. How important is it to think accurately about God? Number two, how can I, how can I know anything accurate and true about God? 
How can I be sure that these things I think about God are actually credible, that they're accurate, that they're true? And third, how does God reveal himself to us? Okay, let's tackle a few of those together this morning. Kind of, I've actually kind of tackled them all already, but I'll just kind of go back and cover what I just said. Um, how important is it to think accurately about God? One of my, my, my favorite, outside of the Bible, probably my favorite book is a, is a little book written by a guy who passed away years ago. Um, it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And it's written by uh, one of my favorite preachers of all time, A.W. Tozer. And um, in fact, I've been going through that book again. I try and read it every year. I've been going through it again. And it, if, if you've read the book before, some of these questions are familiar to you because it's, it's kind of the, the framework for his book. Um, and he, there's two quotes that I wrote down out of this book that he just answers very clearly. He answers this question, how important is it to think accurately about God? Let me give you two statements from the book. First one, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the singular most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Second statement he makes is this, and Jesus, Jesus inspired this statement. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Let me read that again. If we were able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. Why is it so important to think accurately about God is because to think inaccurately about God is to our own demise. It's to do one of two things. It's either to write him off for being other than he is or it's to worship him for being other than he is and to worship a God in your ideas that is inaccurate. In other words, to worship a God that you've imagined inaccurately is actually to create an inaccurate God that you worship. And there's a word for that. That's called idolatry. To create a God in your own thoughts and your imagination that you now worship. If that idea of God differs from the actual God, you're worshiping a less than God. And to worship a God of your own thoughts is just as offensive as to worship a God that you, <laughs> that you made out of gold and fashioned in the shape of a calf. It's... It's ineffective, and it's idolatry. Um, I sketched, years ago, I sketched some crude stick figures out in an old notebook somewhere to try and help me explain this better. And I handed it over to Havila this last week, and she made some much better graphics. Let me show you this to you visually. Um, can you go to the first of those little slides? Here's what I'm trying to get at. There is, in all of us, very likely a difference between these two things. There is God who he actually is. And then there's, in my own mind, what I think God actually is. And odds are, these two different things, one is the truth and one is our idea, they're not 100% the same. Okay? Are you following me so far? There is likely, you have to get a handle on this, there's likely right now a difference in your idea of God between that idea and who God actually is, it differs. 
Now, it's probably similar in some ways and different in others. In fact, if we go to this next slide, if we broke that down further, because I'm a math person, <laughs> if you looked at this maybe in a geometric proof type way, your idea of who you think God is consists of two buckets. All the things you think about God that are correct. And another bucket, all the things you think about God that are incorrect. Does that make sense? The sum of who you think God is consists of your accurate thoughts about God and your inaccurate thoughts, your correct ones and your incorrect ones. You know what the problem with all this is? Most of us would say, yeah, I agree, but we don't know which is in which bucket. Because most of us are getting offensive. We're like, wait a minute. You're saying the odds are there's some things I believe to be true about God that probably aren't? Yes, I believe that. I believe that about me. But then the next, you know, what really rattles us then is, well, how, how do I parse that out? Because here's the problem. You know, if we're thinking things that are inaccurate about God, that's going to mess up the whole way that we live. Well, Pastor, give me an example. Uh, I'll give you a simple one. I have permission from this person to share this story. Um, a friend of mine who doesn't attend this church, a male friend of mine, uh, a couple years ago, um, he lives in another state, and we were talking about advance, you know, because he was listening to our podcast online and, you know, would hear me reference of us building a new church and or wanting to find a place for a more permanent home. And he said to me, he's, he's like, yeah, so um, he's like, he's like so, so what are you going to do? for that initiative, you know, what are, what are you and Kendra going to do? And I, and I told him, I said, you know, well, we believe that God wants us to give $20,000 over 24 months. He's like, man, how are you going to do that? You know, and I just rolled it out for him. I said, you know, I asked God the same question because we looked in our budget first and over 24 months, that was not in our budget. We had about 15% of that that we could find in our budget, but we didn't have that whole amount. I said, but we had been saving up to replace both of our cars because our cars are old. In fact, yesterday as I'm driving the, I don't know what you call the carpet that goes on the top, you know, that little stuff that goes on the top of your roof. As I'm driving, I opened up the sunroof in my Honda and I noticed above Chase's head, it had come unattached and starting to flap. And I'm just like, I can deal with a lot of different things on my car, but when that starts to go, it's like, you know, like I got to get out the hot glue gun and figure out how that works and try and figure that all out. But, you know, like it, it's like they are what they are. I said, but we've been saving up because, you know, we, we don't want to go borrow money. We want to pay cash. And so we've been saving up. But we figured if we took everything that we had saved up so far to replace the cars, plus what was in our margin, and then, you know, if God gave us a favor, we could get there. And, and he, here's what he says to me. He says, man, don't worry about a thing. He's like, you know, if you give that money, God's going to give you a new car. And in this moment, because he's a friend of mine and we have this kind of relationship, I felt like I needed to challenge him because right in that moment I found out he believes something about God that I don't think is accurate. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you know, anytime that you give something like that to God, he's always going to give. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, first of all, God has already given me every car I've ever driven. He's like, well, what do you mean? You paid for those cars. I said, exactly. You know how I paid for those cars? God gave me life. He gave me life in a time of history where they had cars. He gave me gifts, skills, and abilities, opportunities to have education, and I'm able to exchange all of the God-given abilities that he's given me for a job that pays me money. And every day of my life that I've gone to work to earn a paycheck, he's given me the breath and the health to be able to go and do it. He's given me everything I have already. He gave me the money to pay for it. 
through those things. He said, well, I still believe, you know, you don't have to worry. I said, God's going to give you a new car. I said, said, so you mean that if I give God $20,000, he is then obligated because he's God to give me back more than $20,000 in material exchange. You know, that doesn't sound good. I said, it doesn't. I said, because your God becomes a debtor to you when you give. In other words, your God says, well, every time I give in the offering or every time I give a big gift, now God owes me. I have loaned him money and I should expect a return materially because God owes it to me. I know lots of people who from pulpits teach this to their congregations. They teach them, you should give big in the offering, A, so they can get paid and have jets and nice shoes that you can put on Instagram and they can really live in luxury. And they tell you on the other side of it, there's a blessing for you. And sometimes there is, and sometimes the blessing is the fact that you have something to give in the first place. My idea of God was probably like his because I had given in offerings on those ideas early on in my life. And you know what? It never worked. Never worked. I never once have gotten back a brand new car or a bigger house or nicer clothes from God because I gave in an offering. Because what I learned is that my idea of God used to be that at some points I loan God money. He's an investment plan. And if I give, he owes me. He owes me. He owes me. But as I've come to know God better, I understand he has everything. I have nothing. I don't give to get. I give because I've been given. Generosity began with God. I'm just responding to him. And so when I give that $20,000 or whatever it's up to now, I don't sit at home and say, you know what? Let's just drive down to the dealership and tell them we'll take that one and that God's going to pay for it. We just started saving again. And when our cars break down, we go fix them. You know how I can do that? Because God has been generous to me. But you see how thinking inaccurately about God can lead some people to the conclusion that giving doesn't work? It's just you don't know sometimes which of those thoughts are floating around in there that are incorrect, that they're inaccurate. Oh, that we would truly understand the fullness of forgiveness. That we would have a higher, more pure, elevated understanding of God's holiness to set apart. Because I promise you, if you elevate your understanding of God's holiness, it will shape your screen time. It will shape your entertainment. It will shape your thought life. And it won't leave you to feelings restricted. It will lead you to freedom and true rest for your soul. But more on that later. So how important is it to think accurately about God? It's extremely important. Um, Would you agree, though, that what we really want is for our thought bubble to be as close to the real thing as possible? Don't we want what we think about God to resemble, to be as similar as humanly possible 
to who God actually is. That's what we want. That's what I'm inspiring you to. We really want what we think about God to be as close to who he actually is as we possibly can. You can go to the next slide. I'll wrap it up here. Here's the problem with that. (laughs) How can I know anything for sure? That's one of these questions. How can I know anything accurate and true about God? How do we fact check our existing thoughts and figure out which ones are incorrect and then download the zip file that has everything else in it? (laughs) There's a huge problem with this. Because how do you, you know, like, how do you know anything for sure about someone you can't interact with? How do you know for sure as a finite person anything about the infinite? How can Chase know anything for sure about Poppy Woods? Well, the only, the only two ways you can get, you got to go to the source. You've got to be able to compare your copy against the original. That's the only way you can, you got to compare. If you're looking for errors, you know, like Chase loves these little activity sheets. And on the one side has a picture and on the other side, a similar picture says, find the 10 mistakes. You've got to be able to compare that up next to the original. So how do we get to the original? There's a big problem here. This is going to get really bad and then really good really quick because I'm almost out of time. So who God actually is in this picture His fullness, I don't even know how to describe this, his infiniteness is separated from us because we're finite. It's like there's a curtain, there's a wall. We put a curtain here to represent it. It's like God, who he actually is in all his fullness, Jesus says, has to be hidden from us for our own good because no one can go into his presence and live so what i'm saying to you is that we have an idea and part of this argument is flawed because how do we even have an idea of god if he hasn't already done something about it because if he's infinite he could be a really good hider right if he has all the power is he powerful enough to hide himself from us and remove all traces of who he is from us so that we could never find him or think about him absolutely he is But there is a barrier between us and God. And you say, well, how far can we get? How close can we get to God? What does that curtain represent? That curtain, that ceiling on how close finite can get to infinite is called the outer reaches of your imagination. Okay? Human imaginations are pretty powerful. Everything you see is a byproduct of somebody's imagination. Right? We've put people on the moon for crying out loud. So we think, right? Depends on your conspiracy theory about all that, right? We've launched things into space. We've created microwaves. (laughs) We've literally created washing machines now that are Wi-Fi capable. Our washing machine died the other day, and I'm getting ready to buy one. The guy says, now, do you need it to be Wi-Fi? Do you need it to be smart Wi-Fi? I said, what? They go, yeah, there's there's a variety now that you can sync it up with your phone. Really? Does it fold? Does it pick the stuff up and throw it in there? Will it pick chase? If it'll do all that, I'm down. You know, like Roomba for a washing machine or whatever. We've imagined all this stuff, but what I'm telling you is that God is infinite, and as far out as the human imagination can push, there's a place where it can't go any farther, and that is where infinite is. And that's where God is. Okay? The God you get in your minds is still reducing something down. Because how do you know, how can you understand something you can't understand? 
How can you know the fullness of something you cannot know the fullness of? The only bridge between finite and infinite is by taking things you do know and using them as bridges to understand something you can't. And that's why I say we know what God is like. That's why I have to use seven-year-old vocabulary to help my son understand and use those things as a bridge to understand what his great-great-grandfather was like. That's why the few people in the Bible who got access to seeing God's throne room or heaven or him, their vocabulary gets really strange really fast and very inexact. Ezekiel, Isaiah, John, the revelator. So there's a barrier between my idea of God and being able to compare it to the original. And this is, Jesus says as much. He, he, this is the verse that Jesus says, no one truly knows the Father. And that could be a huge problem when we could pack up shop and say this is all futile. Pastor, you've proven to me that it's a matter of life and death that I think accurately about God. You've also proven me that I probably don't think accurately about God, which is bad. Then you said, if I really get inspired by this and I want to do, do something about this, I need to go to God directly. I need to go to the source. And you've just shown me that I can't do that. There's another way you can know something true. You have to have credible, firsthand testimony. If you can't get to the source... But if you can get to a truthful source, if you can get to that source that is also for, that has firsthand experience with the true source, and that intermediate source is accurate and truthful, then you can learn something about. There is one strategy and only one strategy by which the infinite can be known by the finite, and that strategy is one word, and it's called revelation. The person on the upper left side of that curtain has to will and to choose to pull back the curtain and to go to the finite. The finite cannot traverse the wall and go to the infinite, but the infinite, if it so chooses, can bridge that gap. And that last slide, the next to the last slide that I have is this. Thank God that the curtain has been pulled back. Here's what Jesus says. No one truly knows the Father. And then there's an exception and an and. No one truly knows the Father except the Son. And who is the Son? Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, I know the Father and the Father knows me. In other words, we're getting part of the Trinity definition here. We are co-equals. We know one another in truth. Other places he says, I know you can't see the Father, but if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Have we seen him in all his fullness? Oh, no. But the Father said, you know what? What's something that human beings can relate to? Another human being. That's why he didn't send Jesus as just a brilliant light. He sent him to take on the form of, I can relate to a child. I can relate to a 30-year-old man. I can relate to a 30-year-old man who faced criticism, who faced temptation. I can relate to that. And even though it doesn't tell me everything about God, it gives me something about God I can relate to. 
Now, why can I even do that? Because Jesus says, no one knows the Father truly except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to do what? To reveal. The only way you know anything about God is because God has the grace to pull back the curtain and reveal himself to you because he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. And the way you know God is only by revelation. The true source pulls back the curtain and reveals something true about himself to you. So we have some sources of revelation. There are some places you can go, some credible sources you can go to compare your thoughts about God to who he actually is and what he's like. You have his son, Jesus Christ. And where do we go for that? We go here. God's word is his self-disclosure. The only person authorized to write the book on the infinite is the infinite. And this is the highest level of authoritative revelation we have. It's even more authoritative than your feelings, than your personal experiences. All of those things are real, but they have to be compared against this. Every word of prophecy, every word of knowledge, every moment, every feeling you have about God might be very real to you, but it is also your interpretation of something. It has to be compared to this. The revelation, the revealed word of God. How does God reveal himself to us? He reveals himself to us through his word, through his spirit, which lives inside of us. God says in his word, he reveals things that are true about him through his messengers, right? That's one of the roles I have in my life. I am called by God to be a messenger. I'm supposed to carry truth about who God actually is and filter it through my own unique communication style and make it come out accurately. Do you know how much righteous pressure there is on that when you really think about that? It almost makes you never want to utter any word because if I utter one word even sideways that leaves you with an inaccurate view about God, this book says God will judge me more severely because I'm damaging your perception of who he is. So those of you who think it's great to stand up and have people come listen to you, friend, you don't understand what it is. It is a mandate from God to be accurate. So I, I've got to pray, Lord, keep that curtain open in my life at all times. No matter what I think about something, tell me from here and help me get this communicated accurately. Any messenger who claims to know more about the Bible than the Bible says on any matter, run from them. Because they're contributing to your inaccurate views of who God is. He speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, through his messengers. You know he also reveals himself to us through his creation? Do you know that? There's this there's fascinating verse, a verse in Psalms that I've got pages and pages and pages of stuff that I've written down over the years, and it's, it, it connects to Romans. Basically, the idea is this, between if you connect the Psalm 91 and, and Romans 1, is that everything God created, he did with the idea of it being an autobiographical revelatory arrow. In other words, he either made grass completely at random, or he did it with purpose. And what it says in Romans and in Psalms is that everything God made has a praise element to it. In other words, it is designed to reveal part of who God is to us if we will simply observe and understand. 
every tree, every wave, every storm. There's something revelatory about who God is in his creative fingerprint on that item. I'm trying not to nerd out and be too academic. What I'm telling you is that God is screaming to us, I want you to come and find me. I will close with this thought. You do, because you could go home and say, well, what is even the point here? We have one more slide, right? So here's what we want. Everything about who God actually is is in two buckets. That sounds really arrogant. Um, but follow me. There's the things, if you just took who God actually is, there's, you can put it all, you, you can put all the infinite in two buckets, which in and itself is impossible. You can't put, you can't divide infinite by anything. But supposing that I could break all those rules for a minute. It's either the things about God that are true that we can't know or that he's chosen not to reveal yet. That's one category. And that one, I can't stretch my arms wide enough. That bucket is that big. <laughs> then you'd pull a little thimble out of it. And there's the other category. These are the things about God that are true that we can know because he's revealed them to us. And sometimes he moves things from the big bucket into the little bucket. So there's a whole lot about God we cannot know because we're finite or that he's just chosen not to reveal to us. And we have to be okay with letting that bucket be big. We're really not. Because when you run, you've had experiences where God doesn't fit in your thimble. So you try and reduce him to fit there because you're uncomfortable with saying, well, maybe, just maybe, that's part of who God is that he can't reveal to me. Will I still trust him even if I can't fit him in my thimble? Do you want a God that can fit in your thimble or do you want the big one? I want the big one. I want the big God. What I want to do in my life, though, is say, God, I don't want to get lazy. Anything that you've revealed to me that I can possibly know about who you are, I want to I want to know. I want to know the truth. I want to elevate what I think of you because it will lift me up. And some of you could be thinking, what is even the point, Pastor? What is even the point with all this? Why should I even want to pursue God? Because he wants you to find him. He wants you. Jesus ends this whole diatribe by saying, so come unto me. He doesn't say, you can't know God except for my few handpicked people, so go on your way. He says, come to me. Come to me. Do you understand any time my seven-year-old is victorious in the game of hide-and-seek with me, it is only the result of grace on my part? You understand what I'm saying to you? Compared to him, my hiding skills are infinitely better. I could literally wait until while he's counting down the basement, run upstairs, take my car keys, go out the front door, Get in my car and just keep driving. He would never find me. I'm a better hider than he is a seeker. But what kind of a dad would you think I am to say, you know what? I know you need me. I know you're lost without me. We're going to play hide and seek. And I'm going to exercise how good my hiding skills are and prove to you you can never find me. No, every time he wins, it's because of an act of grace on my part. I diminish a little bit my hiding skills. And I let him find me. And you know what? I want him to find me because I love watching his face when he finds me. It brings him joy. You understand any thought you have of God that is accurate is an act of grace from God to you because he wants you to find him. He's a better hider than we are seekers. And he doesn't let that stand in the way. He knows if you're lousy at seeking, he just needs to be very obvious. But then there's also something precious about those times in lives where you grow in your seeking ability. And he starts letting you look in places you never thought he'd be, and you find him there. 
I don't know if I've done any justice to this at all, (laughs) but I hope I've inspired you to at least take some step to say yes to Jesus' invitation for you to raise your thinking of him to a level that's worthy of him. Let me pray for you this morning. If you have never received Jesus Christ into your life, if you've never surrendered control of your life to him, God has pulled back the curtain from heaven and your access to God comes through Jesus. If you know Jesus, you have relationship with God. If you surrender control of your life to Jesus and get to know him and begin to relate to him and identify with him and begin to seek him, you will have relationship in truth and fullness with God. And if that is a step in your life you are ready to take this morning, I want to pray for you. Beginning a relationship with Jesus is as simple as ABC, admit, believe, choose. You have to admit that you've fallen short of the mark, that you are sinful, that you are broken, that you have lived your life your own way without any thoughts of who God is. You have to then believe in Jesus Christ. You must believe that he is, that he was, and that he will be. You have to believe that he is the sinless son of God who came to earth and took the form of a person because it's identifiable and relatable. He was God's choice. He is God revealing himself to us through the life of his son who lived the sinless life who died an innocent death on the cross as our substitute in our place who rose from the dead who is alive today and presents us to his father on his own credentials on his own resume not on our performance and you have to choose to surrender control of your life to his lordship in fact god will you elevate all of our thoughts of what it means for you to be our king to be our Lord. We love to think of you as our Savior. But sometimes we don't think of you as our Lord. Will you elevate and purify our thoughts of you as our Lord today? Let me pray over those of you who want to make a decision to surrender your life to Jesus this morning. You can just pray this simple prayer right where you are. Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner and I'm in need of being saved. I confess my belief in your life, your death in my place, and your resurrection from the dead. I accept forgiveness for my sins. I invite you to live in me and change me. Make me more like you. Help me to think more highly of you, of your Father, of your Spirit. And I surrender control of my life to you. Amen. Father, will you raise all of our thoughts of you? Will you purify the way we think of you? Will you please forgive us for thinking more lowly of you than you deserve? May we not be a thermometer of a fallen world that continues to reduce you and diminish you. But may we be a thermostat that raises people's understanding of who you are until it becomes a place that is worthy of who you are. Have your way in this congregation today and always. In your name we pray.